9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in New York City. In Washington, D.C., we have the fabulous recently installed Rosa Brooks and... David Sanger of the New York Times, who is, I think, in Washington, D.C. Are you not in Washington? Yeah, I, I have, but I've probably been uninstalled. You know? Uninstalled. <laughs> um, well, Everybody saw it on their computer and decided not to install David. Yeah, yeah. Right. well, that's true. Well, Rosa was installed by Geek Squad, so you could just give them a call. Um, and <laughs> in the sunny state I of, can be installed on your computer. Yeah. yeah by, by now, the fantastic Rosa Brooks app. Anyway, straight from Deep State Radio. Uh, we also have, in sunny California, as you've already heard, Corey Shockey, who is out there enjoying the beginning of the baseball season, which in London they don't seem to care much about. Yes, it is. It all by itself explains why Great Britain is no longer the hegemon of the international order, because they do not have that high religious holy day of the opening of baseball season. And you but think Corey, that this is because this is not because they have withdrawn from Major League Baseball. It's because they never they never actually joined. It, it's the opposite of the EU problem, right? <laughs> By the way, Canada plays very good baseball, so it should have infected Britain through the Commonwealth, but evidently not. Well, didn't baseball begin with the sport of rounders, which was a British sport? The British say that quite a lot. <laughs> but you've done you've done no investigation at the museum at the museum of rounders, which no doubt exists someplace. Um, so let's start today with. Um, you know, as good a place as any every day, David Sanger has a story on some major breaking trend in the world uh, on which he sheds light and wisdom. Um, and uh, today, with the day we're taping this, which is Monday, there's a story in the New York Times home site about Donald Trump, Venezuela, and red lines. But rather than having me explain it, David, why don't you give us the synopsis? Well, the synopsis is this, David, that I was struck by the fact that during the campaign, President Trump was quite critical, understandably so, of the red lines that Barack Obama drew about Syria. And you'll remember that when it came to Syria, uh, President Obama came out in 2011 and said Assad has to go. Uh, he came out uh, a few years later and said it would be a game changer for him if uh, Assad used chemical weapons. And then, of course, famously, uh, called off a, a military strike. And he said, if the Russians come in uh, to Syria, as they were beginning to do during his time, he said, don't worry, they're basically going to get bogged down there. And, and what happened? We all know uh, what happened. Assad uh, didn't go. Uh, Obama didn't strike. And the Russians don't appear to have gotten bogged down. They actually appear to have uh, actually restored a place in the Middle East. 
So I can understand why uh, candidate Donald Trump was critical of Obama in this case. It was not their best moment in diplomacy, as we as we've noted several times on on Deep State Radio. Um, so what's happened in Venezuela? The president has come in and said Maduro must go. Well, the last time I looked, not only was he there, but the military is sticking with him. Uh, this morning, um, the secretary of state, uh, Mike Pompeo, came out for about the third time saying the Russians must not be in uh, in Venezuela. Well, they've landed two plane loads of military advisors and an awful lot of arms. And uh, the other thing the United States has said is that everybody should join in in the sanctions and recognizing uh, uh, Juan Guaido as the actual legitimate interim president. About 50 some odd countries have uh, recognized Guaido, but Russia and China have not played in the sanctions. Uh, and I can understand why, because Venezuela owns the, owes them a boatload of money. Um, so I would say that right now, uh, President Trump is well on his way to repeating some of the mistakes that he was rightly critical of Obama for. Um, well, one way or the other, um, you know, going in hard against Venezuela right now, while there is a ring of Russian military around um, uh, Maduro, uh, could cause all sorts of challenges as well. Um, so. Rosa, but give 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 a reaction to this, and do you see other examples of this with Trump? Sure, there are lots of other examples of this, uh, and but I'm gonna based on those previous examples actually make a prediction, um, which is no, Donald Trump will not treat this as a red line that actually forces him into any particular action, because as we we as we have seen before, whether it's North Korea, uh, or whether it's uh, uh, other issues, um, Iran. Uh, the good news and the bad news with Donald Trump, depending on your point of view, is that it turns out that his, he's, you know, he's, as they say in Texas, he's, he's all hat, no cattle. Um, he makes a lot of noise. He talks about fire and fury and do this or else you're going to see, uh, you're going to be so, so, so sorry. And then he finds some way to back down. He either finds some face-saving way, or he just doesn't care. He just changes the subject, and his supporters don't seem to notice the difference anyway. So I, you know, is is this uh, is it hypocritical of him to repeatedly do this, even though he criticized Barack Obama for doing the same thing? Of course it is. Does that mean that he will then feel compelled to behave any differently uh, in order to avoid charges of hypocrisy? No, I don't think so. I think he will. I think he will. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump is unduly concerned about potential charges of hypocrisy. So, so I, I, I think David's analysis is is entirely right. Um, but my guess is that this will not, in fact, again, for better or for worse, and in some ways perhaps for better, will not, in fact, lead to a major confrontation with Russia or indeed with anybody in Venezuela. For for some reason, when you were talking. And you mentioned fire and fury. I had this image of Sanger up at his farm in Vermont with his two Rottweilers, fire and fury. <laughs> I'm a yellow lab kind of guy. <laughs> just kind of, you know. I, I can just see you walking down the driveway flanked by the... Anyway, um, Corey, 
what you know what should we be doing in Venezuela? I mean, Maduro's a bad guy. He follows a guy who was a bad guy. The people are in terrible shape. Um, and Trump has made ratcheting up the pressure on Venezuela priority. Even in the past couple of days, Bolton has been talking about new sanctions, which likely would squeeze the people of Venezuela more than they did the government. But nonetheless, uh, this is a very, very sensitive situation. And now you've got the Russians there, which complicates things even further. Yes, I think that's right. My preferred strategy is for the United States to underplay its hand in Latin America and the Philippines and other places where we have had heavy-booted American foreign policy in ways that fostered anti-Americanism. I think the best strategy for Venezuela, for the United States in Venezuela right now, is treating this as a humanitarian disaster. Uh, this is... You know, just as the famines don't occur because of scarcity of food, they occur because of failures of governance. I think this is a man-made catastrophe in Venezuela, first by Chavez and then by Maduro. This is a country that ought to be prosperous and isn't. And I think uh, this foolishness about, you know, Bolton's little... Uh, 50,000 troops on standby staff actually helps Maduro stay in power, that the United States shouldn't militarize this problem. What we should do instead is three things. First, provide humanitarian assistance and facilitate the humanitarian work of groups like the International Crisis Group, Human Rights Watch, that not only will help the people of Venezuela, but will help create the kind of transparency and accountability for the, the government in Venezuela's choices. The second thing I think we should do is help and support and set up to be successful the, the regional neighbors of Venezuela who have been taking in so many refugees and are stepping forward with major political actions, like trying to take Maduro to the International Criminal Court for what he's doing in Venezuela. Um, I think that's really important that in places like Latin America and the Philippines, where the United States had been a, an imperial power, if we instead help create the help foster the leadership by the countries in the region that achieves what we want, also want to have achieved, but empowers them to be major foreign policy actors. I think that has, it's not only good Venezuela strategy, it has lots of collateral benefits. And the third thing that I think we should do is use the, the attention that the United States can bring to a problem. Um, you know, President Trump did a little bit of this meeting with the wife of Venezuela's opposition leader. But to, to do that broadly and not just out of the White House, so that I would love to see us sending both public and private messages to the military and police leadership in Venezuela, as well as the political leadership, that we will pursue 
um, justice for any acts that they, any violence that they commit against the Venezuelan people, so that you try and shape the choices of major Venezuelan political and military actors as the crisis comes to a head. I think all of those things um, can make for better policy than what it sounds like the Trump administration is considering. So, David, um, you know, were Trump to to paraphrase one of Corey's undoubted heroes, Admiral Farragut, to say, "Damn the Russians!" Yes, he is one of my heroes. No, I figured I figured he would, and that's because his name is David <laughs> David Farragut. But um, if 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 Corey. If 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 Trump were to say sort of damn the Russians full speed ahead and really squeeze Maduro, I, I, I sort of hate to always bring things back to this, but one thing we haven't seen Trump do is actually get crosswise with Putin, because there does seem to be the possibility that Putin could leak three stories that would make Trump's life a living hell. They didn't even they don't have to be true. All he has to do is have three Russians come forward and say, you know, I actually did this. And Trump is screwed. And th this is a sort of hidden cost of this whole Russiagate thing, which is Putin to this day has leverage over Trump. Well, let's go back to Admiral Farragut first, and then we'll get to Putin, because the two of them are so often discussed uh, uh, together. Um, so, uh, Corey, you're a fan of David Farragut. I've always liked his father, who was... David Porter, who was a, 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 the Commodore uh, running the USS Constitution in the first Barbary War, which you may remember was the first time that Rothkopf thought up doing deep state radio. It was during the dealing with the Barbary pirates. Yes. And, and you know, you can make fun <laughs> of me, but thinking this up prior to the invention of either radio or the Internet is pretty impressive. That was very impressive. He was, yeah. And we've always said you were ahead of your time. Um, so. What's been unusual here is that in the Syria example that I gave, President Obama actually got out and talked about Assad and later got criticized for saying things he couldn't back up. In this case, what's been really fascinating about this whole thing is that President Trump has said very little about Maduro, very little about Venezuela, uh, sometimes when asked at a press conference, but he hasn't gone out and issued statements, he has left it to um, Secretary of State Pompeo, to John Bolton, who um, issued a statement the, on Friday that basically told the Russians not to interfere in the Western Hemisphere, thus bringing back the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which was 1823, even predated pre-state radio, believe it or not. Um, uh, so... Um, He's left it to his surrogates. And one of the interesting questions is, is he doing this because he doesn't want to confront Putin straight on, which might fit your theory there uh, in your last point? Is he doing this because he doesn't want his own voice out there in case they fail, which could well be? Maybe the lesson he emerged from was that Obama shouldn't have said this all himself. Or is he holding himself in reserve for that real moment where you need to go do something, which would require like advanced planning. May I suggest that um, the elegance of David Sanger's analysis 
is so much greater than the amount of effort the president has put into thinking through any of this pony blanket of possible courses of action. Rosa's had this right since 2016. He's not a strategist. He's just He's just doing whatever, resigning himself to whatever impulse motivates him at the moment. I like almost certainly true. I love pony blanket of possible options there, by the way. I think that's, (laughs) um, by by the way, that's what they use. That's what the army used to call the branches and plans of, of an enormous planning process. They called it a pony blanket. No, no, I like that. Um, uh, by the way, Rosa, before I get to Rosa, David, is it not true that you were deeply involved in getting Obama caught up with his red lines? Didn't didn't you pose a question or something that caused them a problem back in the day? I did ask a, I did ask a question or two about red lines along the way. I think that's true, but but the one red line phrase that he used when he said this would be a game changer. He just did, not in response to questions, he just did all by himself. Um, Red Lines had also gotten the Bush administration into trouble on questions I certainly asked about North Korea, but the North Koreans walked so far past those Red Lines, we can't even see them anymore. Yeah, well, it's always a good point to be reminded that the Obama administration, whatever its merits, was not exactly... You know, he, you know, hitting for a high average on foreign policy, even though there's this whole sort of mythology now. Well, we need Joe Biden back because we need people who really know how to do foreign policy. And for it's crying like, out loud. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like, well, not, not really. Uh, I, let me do something here that that we have almost never done. In By the, the way, David, I just have to ask you: Has Joe Biden ever come up and done anything with your hair? He he's run his fingers through it and he smells it. <laughs> Okay. I uh, guys, I do not need those visuals. <laughs> Come on. Does he massage your shoulders while he does that? Sometimes. Ah! Sometimes we do each other. Um, uh, but uh, I, yeah, that's gonna that's that's really the big issue with Joe Biden is did did he sniff somebody's hair? In any event, um, Rosa, what I was gonna say is we're gonna do something we we seldom do here, which is go from one Latin America story to another. But as I as I hear, you know, Corey's strategy, and as we talk about this and the humanitarian crisis, you know, we also have this, quote, crisis on the southern border where the president has asserted that he is going to shut the border and that cutting off all of those Mexican imports will actually pay for itself, which, you know, I'd like you to explain the economic logic of that. But <laughs> But the other thing that he has said in all of this, or they've decided to do, is to stop providing aid to the countries where these refugees are coming from. Um, that'll which, show them. That'll show them, which seems to me to be likely to have exactly the opposite effect. But perhaps I'm missing something from this particular pony blanket. Well, David, perhaps you are. <laughs> it's it's uh, one of your, not only one of your more evil Trump uh, threats, but also one of the more demented Trump threats. Um, the idea that, quote, closing the U.S.-Mexico border 
is somehow going to be good for anybody uh, is is pretty mysterious, and I think this can only make sense in the mind of Donald Trump. Um, it certainly has potential to be economically uh, quite bad for border towns and border states in, in the U.S. Uh, it also is, from an economic standpoint, in terms of the disruption of trade, the disruption of tourism on, on both sides of the border. Um, it's also, I think, from a humanitarian perspective, which clearly is not what is uppermost in the mind of, of Donald Trump, uh, there are so many families in, in, on both sides of the border that are close relatives of people on the other side of the border. You know, that, that our two nations, Mexico and the United States, are, there, there's, you know, that borderline is not a, it's not some kind of magic line that separates us culturally and linguistically in Texas and Arizona and other, in other border states. Uh, you know, a very substantial percent of the population has cousins and in-laws and siblings and parents or children uh, who are on the opposite side of the border. So it's 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 sort of crazy on every level on on sort of causing needless misery and hardship for for families that are separated. You know, even if it ends up being temporary, as presumably if he tried to do it, it would be. Um, but but from a humanitarian perspective, from an economic perspective, it's dumb. Further for. Furthermore, I will I will add that according to the Guardian, uh, in in the uh, land where Corey normally abides right now, uh, the Guardian says that the United States will run out of avocados in three weeks if the border between the U.S. and Mexico is closed by Donald Trump. And as we know, that would probably cause uh, possibly a revolution. Well, it's know, second the, second the losing avocados. Um, might be auto parts. I mean, has well, anybody? Well, you know, David, I think the avocados are, are more vital because well, hipster communities around the nation are dependent upon the avocados for avocado toast. And also, if you if you have ever tried to go out and you know have dinner with Corey, you would know that avocados are sort of staples of the veggie <laughs> diet. Uh, that is exactly right. They yeah. are, in fact, after coffee, <laughs> my major. My major food group. It's true. Well, one thing that hasn't come up yet. So the fun and games of avocado is one thing, but Mexico is the United States' third largest export market. No, right. It's <laughs> so it's not is just not. what we're not gonna get. It's the economic diminution of us we by not being able to export there. We're gonna buy our stuff if we can't sell it to people in Mexico. Um, we're going to have to sell it to, you know, God, Chinese don't want our stuff. It's very sad. Um, but no, no, absolutely. I mean, from both an economic perspective and a humanitarian perspective and just a, a logistical perspective, this doesn't even make any sense. The the sort of closing of the border is, is almost impossible to do fully logistically. And, the, David, the other issue that you brought up was Trump's threat to cut aid uh, to to several Latin American countries. Uh, from which the majority of the asylum seekers and refugees are coming is, of course, even crazier because presidents from both parties have long recognized that in the long run, if you want to stem the flow of, of essentially particularly economic migrants, but also flow, flow of people fleeing from civil wars, et cetera, political repression, that it's very much in our interest to do what it takes to make their home countries safer and more prosperous places to live so they don't feel like they have to leave. And when we cut aid off, it's a you know, classic cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's, it's not atypical of this administration, but it's 
uh, almost certain to have the opposite effect of that that Trump claims to be seeking. Can now, I Corey, pile on? You know, you can, but I thought this was an excellent opportunity for you to bring up the Treaty of Guadalupe, Dalgo. <laughs> yes, by which I Isn't think... that the source of a completely separate podcast? I mean, where we could <laughs> just do something on the impact of that treaty? So, David Sanger, it is making my heart flutter that you believe a single 45-minute podcast is inadequate for the exploration of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, so thank you for that. My 19th century historian's heart is a flutter. Uh, and David, I take that your point by bringing up the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was that America bears some complicity in all of what is going on. And just to pile on to Rose's excellent point about assistance to the countries of Central America, um, the, the gang and drug violence that is generating people fleeing from Central America. Uh, the United States bears complicity for in three ways. First, because we're the market these drugs are going to. Um, and so we're a part of this problem and we ought as a moral society to take some responsibility for their assisting in the solution of it. Second, the the increasing success of US and Mexico cooperation to reduce drug and gang violence in Mexico is geographically shifting the center of gravity to Central America. And, and so therefore we, we have some responsibility in the fact that it's occurring in Central America. And third, the MS-13 gang that is, that is such a virulent danger in, the, in Honduras and other places gets its start in the prisons in Southern California. So in all sorts of ways. And a fourth thing I would add is that the reason we give assistance to governments in the region is to help them build the capacity to fight this kind of violence and to fight the international criminal networks that are behind it. And so, uh, you know, it, as Rosa said, it's a stupid and self-defeating policy because it's gonna give more space for the international criminal networks to create the violence that's fostering the refugee flow. I feel like what I'm hearing in my head is that wonderful scene from um, Casino Royale where M says to, to James Bond, this may be too much for a blunt <laughs> instrument to understand, but arrogance and self-awareness seldom go hand in hand. That's <laughs> by, by the that's way, how many- Arrogance I, and self-awareness combined. Uh, I just, I just want, I just want the, our our listeners to appreciate the fact that Corey is one of the few who can um, put the treaty in the same answer <laughs> with a scene from from one of the best James Bond movies. Well, there's a big debate about whether that's one of the best James Bond movies. Although I, I curtsy my thanks to you, David Sanger. I tend to be with you on that. Well, this I have to say, this is um, one really stinky uh, pony blanket then. But let's um, let's 
do something we've also never done, which is go from two stories on the Americas to a third story. One of the reasons <laughs> that we've got what? a pro- yeah, no, it's true. I didn't expect it, Isn't but that's where quota? you end up. There's a quota. I thought yeah. we had we were going to have a quota. <laughs> no, no, we'll go back to talking about you know Trump's hair next week. But but the one of the reasons that we're in the position of turning up the heat a little bit um, on Venezuela is that there has been a political sea change in Brazil, and they've gone from uh, uh, the governments of the PT, the Workers Party. Uh, Lula and then Dilma and then her replacement to the government of Jair Bolsonaro, who may be that rare Trump imitator who's actually worse than Trump, um, who is vile in every conceivable respect and doesn't much like democracy. I should add, by the way, that another element of this phenomenon is that although Trump got off on the right foot, um, with the Mexican um, president, uh, Lopez Obrador, AMLO, as he's known, um, uh, simultaneously, and perhaps because he knew Trump would let him cut cut him the slack, since he took over, he has, like Bolsonaro, been working to dismantle the institutions of the state that actually support democracy. So we have a shift going on in this part of the world which may be actually more dangerous than either of the two situations we're talking about here, which is anti-democratic. David, you want to pick up on that? Well, you know, it wouldn't be the only place. I mean, obviously, we've seen this in Europe, and you've certainly seen it in Hungary. You've seen it in in Turkey. And, uh, you know, my guess is that if there's if if any of those are um, good indications, then uh, Donald Trump is going to embrace the new uh, Brazilian uh, government quite warmly because he certainly has when this has happened elsewhere and in the Philippines. We ought to we ought to add um, as well. Um, what I find fascinating, though, is that we are not seeing all of those governments particularly add on to the pressure on Maduro himself. I mean, some have joined, some have not, but this has not been a a great coalition that uh, the president has been able to bring together so far that has made sanctions work and so forth. No, well, that's my point. The Brazilians used to be supportive of the Chavez regime. They've now stepped back and and Bolsonaro is, is sort of allowing Trump to do what he wants to do. Yeah, but he's not. But he's not throwing his body into it at, at this point into 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 helping along, which is of course what we're hearing from the State Department that we're that they were seeking to get throughout the region. So you know, yes, he's allowing Trump to do what he's doing, but you know, it would take a more active. Uh, you know, now of course the Brazilians are tied up in almost all of their their own issues um, at this moment. What what's missing from all of this, at least in the way that the White House is describing this to us, is an overall um, regional uh, uh, philosophy, because you can't sit here and argue about the need for greater liberalism and democracy in uh, Venezuela and say so little about what seems to be coming together in Brazil. Yeah, well, Rosa, I, I disagree with David there. I think there is a regional philosophy. It's the regional philosophy of the 1980s, which many of these 
uh, folks are involved, you know, who who are doing this policy were involved with, which is sort of, you know, anti-communism. It's kind of Cold War era regional policy, and they think they can go and jump on Venezuela because it looks similar to something they thought once existed there. Uh, I'm I'm being a little facetious, obviously. I I, I don't see any real strategy there, but. But I just I guess the, the the culmination of this is the Mexican government's heading in the wrong way. U.S. Mexico relations are heading in the wrong way. The United States is cutting off aid to the Northern Triangle countries. Venezuela is in crisis, and the United States is stoking the fire there. The Venezuela crisis, of course, involves Cuba, which is their closest ally. It now involves Russia. It involves refugees going into Brazil, the biggest country in South America, which is uh, refugees going into Colombia, the biggest country in, in South America, Brazil, has taken a hard turn to the right um, and is run by a, a pretty nasty piece of work. Um, th this is sort of one of the less good moments in hemispheric um, uh, relations that I can think of in the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and I'm just wondering what your your comment is on that, that court. Yeah, I, I, or I, Rosa. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Wait, go ahead. What, go, what? go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, okay. I will be brief. Yes, I, I think that's right, David. And I, and I think that the the parallels with the 1980s in the context of of uh, Central and South America are are really quite chilling. Um, I think we, when we talk about the impact that Donald Trump, with his authoritarian tendencies, is going to have on uh, the American polity in the long term we get to feel at least a little bit uh, uh, calmer when we reflect that we do not in our country since the Civil War, um, you know, more than 150 years ago, we don't, we don't have a recent history of, of violent bloodshed, you know, internecine conflict in our country. But obviously in, in Latin America, there are many, many countries that have a quite recent history of absolutely vicious state repression or, or vicious civil wars, uh, very much on the on the sort of Cold War axis of, of communist socialist sympathizers versus more capitalistically oriented sympathizers, and the the power once again uh, the the political winds have have blown back into power in a number of these societies, including most most notably Brazil. Uh, far, far right leaders who are in all kinds of absolutely explicit ways hearkening back to the mass, massive use of torture, disappearances, uh, dirty tricks, uh, uh, and widespread uh, bloodshed of the 1980s as, as the good old days. And in, in Brazil, we saw uh, President Bolsonaro actually urging the military to celebrate the 55th anniversary of the military coup that led to a period of brutal dictatorship. Um, you know, prior Brazilian presidents had regarded that um, rather differently. And, and, and here there's an, you know, an active effort to, to celebrate that and to suggest that those were, those were the good old days and, and we should try to bring them back if we can. And, and I think that for, for those reasons, both, both citizens of Brazil, citizens of some of the other Latin American countries we've been talking about, but also citizens of the United States and, and, and neighboring countries should, should be worried that it's not just nasty. In the context of, of places like Brazil, this isn't just unpleasant rhetoric. 
that you can confidently shrug off as well. It's disgusting, but this guy, this will, it will pass. Uh, this is this is a society with a history of nasty rhetoric turning into uh, widespread atrocities and civil conflict, and it could very easily happen again. Well, Corey, you know, this brings us back to the light touch. You know, if the whole time I've been involved in foreign policy, which is now like 30 years, um, the, 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 the big complaint from people involved in Latin policy in the U.S. is the U.S. don't have enough, doesn't have enough, you know, focus on Latin America, doesn't prioritize it. Of course, the, 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 the general view in Latin America is the U.S. shouldn't, and they prefer it if the U.S. stayed out. Um, but we're at one of these points where there's kind of a mess, and this administration kind of sort of wants to get involved in the mess and is encouraging some dark forces in, in, in all of this. Um, and... You know, I'm just wondering, you know, you know, what 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 your sort of outlook is given the moment. Well, I think Rose's comment from earlier is exactly right, namely that um, the the United States, what are we actually gonna do if we are gonna intervene in these countries? You know, I spent some time looking at the Spanish-American War and the kind of unexpected nature of the U.S. as an imperial society. And, and despite, you know, come on in the water's fine entreaties from people like Neil Ferguson that the U.S. just needs to establish an imperial department and get on with it. That's so fundamentally contrary to who we are as a political culture and to how we organize ourselves for foreign policy activity that I think we do, we serve our interests much better by being a lot less grandiose and a lot more we should play a lot more small ball. We should help countries achieve what they're trying to achieve. We should stop being quite so grandiose. We should stop pretending that we've got a plan for how to make Venezuela work because I'm profoundly skeptical that anybody in any department of the American government, A, has developed such a plan, B, has the resources under their control to carry it out, and C, can persuade the American public to pay attention for long enough to see it through. So we ought to be a lot more humble. We ought to be a lot more practical. We ought to be a lot more empowering of others to achieve what they want for their own societies where we agree with it. Hey, David, can I say something in defense of the Trump administration since we have such rare opportunities to go? go I thought so. that was the standard position of the New York Times. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he says that we're failing enemies of the people. Um, so um, what's been absent from their rhetoric uh, so far has been any discussion of military intervention. And I think they have been acutely aware of our ugly history uh, there. But I also think what's going on here is that the one area where Barack Obama and Donald Trump actually found themselves in agreement was deep skepticism that you have any long game, uh, as Bill Burns puts it in his, his uh, new book, the, the Back Channel. You have any long game in doing military interventions that you can't sustain. And so, you know, 
every time we've asked versions of this question at the State Department, we've gotten the ritual, you know, all options are on the table. I mean, you know, the thing that that uh, every uh, diplomat has has implanted in the chip in their head. But there's no military option out here, particularly. They've been trying to encourage the the Venezuelan military to, to uh, back uh, Guaido and, and uh, dump Maduro, but they have not really had a significant military option out here. And I actually don't think Donald Trump would go for one. I think David is exactly right. Well, what sort of steps on the imperialism argument that you're hearing from, yeah. you know, the left saying, you know, here's the U.S. once again doing what we did in the 50s in Latin America. I actually don't think we're doing what we did in the 50s in Latin America. Um, well, we'll see. Uh, I, I, I suspect we are doing some of the things we did in the 50s in Latin America, uh, and that is covertly trying to undermine Maduro. But I have no information on that. And, uh, well, we'll talk about the uh, access to secure information in this administration in the next episode of this podcast. Um, I, we've come up to the end of our time here. We've devoted a whole podcast to the Americas for those of you out there who are America's geeks. So take that. We're never talking about it again. Um, what? No, no, no. Oh, but also we're... we've had guest appearances by Admiral Farragut, David Porter, and James <laughs> <Hoffman>. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Oh, and James Monroe. And James Monroe, right. You know, I, I was, by the way, looking into this the other day, and I found the John Kerry speech in which he said, you know, the Monroe Doctrine doesn't apply anymore. And I thought, how did that pass without much notice at the time? You know, it was like... <laughs> oh, wait, wait, I know, because nobody was paying attention when John Kerry was talking. That's exactly the reason. But he declared the end of it a long time ago. So there you have it. Um, let, we let know say, one person paid attention to that, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the troops started flowing in. But, um, well, look, uh, we'll, uh, we will continue this discussion as we always do in future episodes of Deep State Radio. I've been handed a note here by our um, uh, 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 producers uh, to say the following three things. One, in coming weeks, Washington for Beautiful People, our podcast with uh, Emily Brandwin from the left coast, um, will be available on a separate feed, while Deep State Radio and National Security Magazine will continue to be available via the Deep State Radio feed. And by the way, I should add that our guest on National Security Magazine this week is Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who's a very interesting guy, very uh, deeply engaged in trying to refashion U.S. Uh, uh, foreign policy. Uh, so I really encourage you to join that. This Thursday, we are launching a, a little experiment called Deep State Radio Live at the Comedy Cellar, which will be broadcast live on our YouTube channel. So it'll actually be a video uh, version of a podcast from the Comedy Cellar um, studios here in New York City. How Members, does that differ from what we do every week? Well, there'll, there'll, be, there'll be actual professional comedians on the show in addition. Oh, who say things fun. that are funny. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Members, Members will receive the audio of the show as well. Um, and each week we're going to have um, a couple of our experts and, and guests. This week will include comedian Seton Smith, who Rosa, you may mention, was on the panel with us when we did this election night. I remember. I'm surprised remember. you remember anything about election night, to be quite I, honest. Well, I was, I did drink his drink. He gave me his drink. And then I remember somewhat less after that. But, but 
<laughs> up until that point, it was all very clear. Watching Rosa drink his drink and descend into a fog was one of really the highlights <laughs> of this whole deep state experience for me. Um, but uh, he's very, very smart, and uh, and you'll find him to be a really interesting guy. Um, and we have another guest who's a very well-known journalist who I will tell you about later. And our podcasts will continue to remain free, but they still come at considerable cost to produce. So please consider becoming a member. It's Members receive exactly receive you get early access to the podcasts you get ad free experience you get bonus member content you get discounts on swag you get a mug you know David Sanger will come to your house and do birthday parties whatever it takes wait a minute do we get videos <laughs> of Rose's installation yes Rose's installation um, is something I will, that we I will send personalized personalized signed videos <laughs> 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 no one would not want that I, uh, in her colorful Harry Potter-like robes. Uh, in any event, <laughs> for more on all of this, go to the DSRnetwork.com, and we look forward to having you join us again real soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.